Hello, dear patrons. So what you're about to hear now is the second part of our interview with Michael Lynn, which is about 40 minutes long. And then you will listen to our after party, which is about 25 minutes, where we discuss and unpick what we've just heard. So your solution in, in the book is um, what you call in the book democratic pluralism. We've also said um, social corporatism um, here on the pod. And I want so, and it seems essentially your your what you see as imperative is to shatter the power of the overclass and to boost the power of the working class through these procedures of democratic pluralism. Um, I wondered if you could so, and I suppose well, if you could elaborate on what it involves, what it looks like. And I wondered if so. I was when I was reading the book, I summarized it to myself in the marginal comment as bring back Jimmy Hoffa question mark um, because you talk about the ugliness of the boss. You know, they're not the is not the kind of person who would um, who would be invited to um, the kind of um, overclass uh, dining room. Um, he's not the kind of person who would fit in into a faculty seminar room, cocktail lounge. He's a very different kind of operator. But is that the kind? So is that is that a? I mean, it's a kind of it's a summary. But is it a fair one of the kind of? Um, the kind of representation and the kind of institutions that you think need to be recreated if democratic pluralism is to be established? Yes, that's a fair summary. We need mass membership organizations that are disciplined and hierarchical uh, and uh, have their own leaders who are accountable to the rank and file, uh, but are not appointed by the metropolitan elites uh, and do not necessarily aspire to join them. Uh, and uh, they, they are, they're kind of like tribunes. They're sort of intermediaries. They are leaders. They can be college educated. They can be from upper middle class backgrounds. But unlike demagogues, they don't just lead these personalistic flash in the pan charismatic movements. So Jimmy Hoff is an excellent example labor union uh, leader, I like to point out that the two greatest uh, American civil rights leaders in the 20th century were A. Philip Randolph, the founder of the mostly black railway porters union, uh, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, a, a, a Southern evangelical pastor. Yeah. Uh, and so they were rooted in these mostly working class organizations, it wasn't a flash mob of voters who come together to vote for Brexit or Trump or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that was true in Western Europe, and it was true in, in so, and we can talk about the cultural aspect uh, uh, later if you want, to focus on the economic. Uh, the, the, you lost me again for a second, so. No, no, that was fine. Okay, so, so let me say, to focus on the economic aspect, you have to do what uh, unionization did in the 20th century, remove wages from competition among firms. Wages must be decommodified because uh, if you have a uh, economic system in which firms can profit by cutting labor costs by any means necessary, they will do so, and this will lead to the collapse of the domestic market, the polarization of society, and the destruction of your civilization. So isn't, but isn't that just abolishing capitalism 
Um, no, it's not because you can have a capitalist system, a regulated capitalist system, in which firms compete on technological innovation and on quality and on service and on reputation uh, once wages and benefits are removed from competition. And that is indeed what was achieved imperfectly, not just in the social democracies in Europe and Christian democracy, in, in post-war Tory Britain, you know, for a long time, uh, in Eisenhower's and Nixon's America, as well as uh, uh, the Teamsters voted for Nixon, thanks to Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. So, but what this does mean, and, and that's why this is a message that neither the right nor the left in the United States is particularly fond of. Yeah. Uh, these, these entities must be independent of the national parties. Uh, they, must re- they, they must be specialized to begin with. Uh, uh, but they, they also simply can't be a wing of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party to get out the vote. I'll give an example. Uh, recently, a, I won't name her, but a, a labor union leader in the U.S. Uh, sent out an uh, uh, invitation to a talk she's giving on you know, how we must, our struggle today. Uh, and she listed in order, if I'm doing this from memory, uh, reproductive rights, climate change, uh, anti-racism, uh, uh, and there was another one, uh, workers I can, and the I can imagine what it number might be. <laughs> five. But, but you know, this, this was the leader of a trade union. Yeah. And the economy and workers and wages, that was number five on the list. It was simply a laundry list. Yeah. What the foundation funded NGO, the nonprofit academic left thinks is important. Uh, so uh, in the United States now, in the private sector, organized labor has collapsed to 6%. Uh, I don't think it can be rebuilt. Uh, I think there will be a new, needed to be a new system. But whatever the system is, uh, it has to have those two characteristics. It has to represent working people and be accountable to them somehow. Uh, and uh, it also can't simply be artificial negativity, to use Herbert Marcuse's term. It can't be something some foundation executives and party yeah. together and said, oh, let's in- create a placebo labor movement. So that takes us into, I mean, that segues very nicely into the next question that I wanted to put to you, which is, um, and it's something which I'm thinking about at the moment, but I think is also um, a problem that confronts anyone, um, I think, who's grappling with similar issues, uh, which is this uh I don't know. I mean, I suppose I could formulate it as a kind of a neo Tocquevillian problem or a Putnamite problem. And you talk about Robert Putnam's work in the book on the collapse of um, associational life, social capital and so on. And it's a problem that's kind of an issue that's widely recognized in social scientific literature and has been much debated. And it seems to uh, that so many of the um, things you would like to see recreated um, seem to depend on the restoration of certain kinds of um, social solidarities, social connectedness, um, social life and collective life that is simply evaporated in the neoliberal era. And so many um, so many debates in this uh, area in the kind of um, around these political problems, they all seem to circle back to this single problem. 
And I don't, and I wonder if it's, um, it seems very difficult to offer any kind of solution to restoring collective life or restoring associational life, because it's uh, such an, not only such an enormous task, but also something that, you know, is organic and it can't simply be resurrected through a few well-designed um, policy tweaks. So given the fact, I mean, you just said yourself that you think there isn't going to be a revival in terms of the private sector trade unionism. How do you see um, the kind of recreation of associational life that would be necessary for your model of democratic pluralism for um, these intermediaries to to act in the way that Jimmy Hoffa once acted on behalf of the Teamsters? Well, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Putnam. One of the criticisms of his first book wasn't really criticism, it's just pointing out that many in bowling alone, many of the examples he gave were of union-related occupation-based recreational activities. So the union would have a bowling, the union would have a, a weekend retreat for workers and so on. So uh, if, if you look at associational life uh, in the United States today, as, as I have done, the uh, professional class is living in this wonderful uh, world. You know, they go to conferences and, and they're, you know, they are part of the parent teachers association and in, their children are involved in activities. And I think that's true in other Western countries. Uh, what was a parallel socially rich uh, uh, system for the working class has disintegrated into what uh, Emile Durkheim, the 19th century French sociologist, called anomie, normlessness or alienation. Uh, and so, but if, if that's correct, if you, Durkheim, in work that is not well known in, in the English speaking world, although it's been translated, he thought he rejected the idea of recreating village life and small associations and small producers and so on. He thought this is impossible in an industrial society. And he thought that the corporation, by which he meant the occupation, the trade union, and the professional association would provide structure and meaning and dignity to people in modern industrial societies uh, who, you know, who no longer lived in this little parochial village community. Uh, now, the fact that one version of this has been destroyed uh, in the last 50 years, and it hasn't been totally destroyed in Europe, but it has pretty much been in the U.S., uh, doesn't mean that other versions cannot be created, and they can be created by the state. They will have to be created by the state. You will have to have some kind of reformist faction of the overclass uh, gain power and use it to create structures uh, that share power with these representatives of working class people. Uh, and, the, and, uh, not, and, and this goes totally against both left neoliberalism and right neoliberalism, which says we will share money with the working class, but we will not share power in decision-making. Uh, so everyone will be free to vote for the, uh, uh, you know, every couple of years, you know, for this pre-selected candidate and maybe the right will win, maybe the left will win. Uh, we will have this ruthless wage 
profit-based race to the bottom capitalism. And then the losers, we will give them coupons to get apprenticeship training uh, in new industries of the future. And we will give them tax credits to soften their pain. Uh, But the one thing the elite will not do is it will not share power. So what would power sharing look like? And Uh, to add to to that, Will do you see this reformist wing of the overclass, do you see anything like that developing on the horizon? Well, we're we're now in the very early stages where uh, opposition to neoliberalism is slowly growing, both on the left and the right. Uh, And I just can't tell you, most of my uh, career, uh, the last 30 years, any, anyone outside of this very narrow Clinton, Democrat, Bush, Republican uh, frame was marginalized. You couldn't be published. You didn't get money. There's no discussion. Uh, that was the left-right spectrum. It ran from the Clintons to the Bushes. Uh, thanks to Trump uh, in his grotesque way, and also to Bernie Sanders, you know, the Overton window has been expanded now. Oh. All kinds of bad ideas are rushing in to fill gap. Uh, and so we get the, my friends, the antitrusters, and we're going to break up all the big businesses and have little mom and pop stores. And so that's just reactionary, uh, small producerism. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get the UBI proponents, you get the Henry George flat taxers. So, but I mean, it's in a way it's a, it's a healthy that there's this intellectual ferment. The group that, that what I'm trying to push, and I have a few allies, uh, mostly, ironically, on the center right, not the center left, like uh, Orrin Cass, uh, former policy director of, uh, of uh, Mitt Romney uh, during his presidential run, who has broken pretty dramatically with the free market consensus of the Republicans. Uh, so there, there, there is sympathy for some kind of organized labor, uh, but they're just, the problem is in, in the United States, we had the enterprise which were uh, firm by firm, which is, is just impossible to do is it, trying to unionize every single company. Uh, the places in Europe where organized labor has continues to survive, you have sectoral uh, collective bargaining within an entire occupation or an entire industry. And in some cases you have universal or near universal coverage without much union membership. In France, for example, you only get about 10% of the population belongs to a trade union. They work in occupations where 90% of the workers are covered by agreements negotiated by union representatives with with employers. Uh, And it may be that we have to go through state corporatism to get to social corporatism. In other words, you may need uh, uh, the government to say, okay, we're simply going to mandate uh, that every firm of a certain size has a works count, uh, that we have, we can skip the whole firm by firm uh, negotiations and go straight to sectoral negotiations. So uh, that takes me to um, one final question on the new class war before I just wanted to briefly talk about um, your uh, views on the academy in particular a piece you wrote for the tablet. But just quickly then, um, the final question on the new class war is, you 
make the case quite strongly in the book about the um, dependence of the pluralistic society that you would like on some kind of geopolitical tension or conflict with the implication that the era of technocratic neoliberalism has also corresponded to the era of um, American unipolarity. So this is, I mean, it's a kind of open-ended and speculative question, but I'm nonetheless interested to hear your thoughts, is how far you think um, this corporatism or democratic pluralism might be stimulated by geopolitical conflict with China? Well, I think that conflict, international conflict, sadly, uh, has been the most powerful motive for selfish elites to share power with the working class. And they've done so not because they were more generous or altruistic, but because they had to make sure that wildcat strikes did not shut down war production, right? And so in both World Wars I and World War II, uh, the Wilson administration, the, the Roosevelt administration, compelled uh, firms to accept unionization in defense work, but they also uh, uh, compelled unions to swear off strikes, which is why many militant labor uh, people are against this, this approach. Uh, you know, if, in, but that's just the history of it. That is, uh, uh, if your goal is to win a cold war or a hot war, you want social peace. It's true if you're fascists, like the Germans and Italians, right? I mean, you don't want strikes and labor violence and so on. And, and, you don't, and, and so you force the capitalists and the workers uh, to negotiate some kind of, of deal uh, for these geopolitical purposes. So it can take illiberal forms and it's not necessarily uh, good for labor. Uh, so a lot of industrial policy and national developmentalism has been based on a deal between government and business at the expense of labor. Yeah. This model in post-war Japan after 1945. Yeah. There was labor conflict, labor was more or less crushed, uh, and you had these kind of powerless company unions. And so Japanese industrial policy, to some extent South Korea, uh, it was bipartite, it wasn't tripartite. So what I'm arguing for is tripartism government labor business uh, collaboration, but it's very easy to imagine in the United States uh, it taking on more of a, a bipartite form where the, uh, the government, you know, adopts reindustrialization and import substitution and so on, but it, uh, it continues to, you know, keep labor weak and powerless and vulnerable. That was indeed the uh, Lincoln Republic, the, the Second Republic of the United States, as I've called it, from Reconstruction all the way up until the New Deal. It was a modernizing developmental state based on import substitution policies, yeah. the state capitalist investment in railroads and other infrastructure and in education and modernizing farming and all of that. And uh, it specialized in sending the National Guard and the Army to crush uh, strikers. Yeah, to keep unions powerless. So, so the two things I would like to see combined: uh, uh, economic developmentalism at the national, and, and, and it could be at the international alliance block level, yeah. the EU, say, and uh, power sharing with uh, organized uh, representatives of labor in some form. The two have gone together in the past, but they don't necessarily go together. 
the one thing that you can't have is uh, organized labor power in a stagnant or declining economy. In that case, all you are doing, and the left really needs to pay attention to this, all you're doing is spreading the poverty around. Yeah. Stagnation around. Any left-wing project worth its salt has to have uh, some kind of vision of productivity growth and technology-driven growth and simply installing solar panels and having more caregivers, which is the Democratic Party's approach, that's not going to do it. That's yeah. not. No, indeed. Um, I, I agree with you entirely. Um, well, that's been great. Absolutely fabulous. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on one final um, question, which is a piece that you wrote for the... Um, the tablet where you talked about ending tenure in the academy. And this seemed to me to be of a piece with um, your arguments about kind of breaking up the power of the overclass and given how important credentialization and um, woke socialization, I suppose, and ideological training is effectively in the academy today to the overclass. I can see the logic of it. What fascinated me about the piece was that um, you identify the same um so the same problem that I've kind of um, been thinking about as well, but you reach a diametrically opposed conclusion. So my solution to the problem of, um, of the way the academy is at the moment, it's orthodoxy, dogmatism, as well as it's kind of um, increasing bureaucracy, bureaucratization internally, was to restore the old ideal of the academy, to restore professional autonomy, um, the, self, the idea of the academy as a self-governing community. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've written a report of, with some specific policies about how that might be achieved in the UK. So I was fascinated to see that we shared, you know, that we kind of diagnosed a similar, so many similar problems, but came to different conclusions. And I wondered, I wanted to put to you, I wondered, given the fact that you wanted, you know, kind of your idea of breaking up the big U, as you call it, the university sector, and that you see... Um, the possibility of entrepreneurs kind of moving in on the model of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos into this sector to come up with new forms and new institutions through which higher education and training might be, you know, disseminated in the future. I wondered how would that not just, you know, how would that not end up being just a neoliberal model? How would that not end up just recreating all the problems that we have in a different form if you broke up universities and demolish the old kind of traditional academic model or what remains of it? Well, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the, uh, that was essentially the model of the medieval university and the Renaissance university uh, and the German research university and uh, uh, German model in particular, because it was such a bureaucratic authoritarian society, the German professors did not want to be run by the Bismarckian bureaucracy. And so the committees, the, the staff, the interesting thing about that model was that the, the menial functions were all performed by professors and the administrative administrators were professors, right? The committees were professors and so on. Uh, what is destroying the universities in the US is uh, this hy hypertrophy of administrators. Uh, I've, I've been, uh, I've taught off and on at, at, 
as an adjunct or as a professor of practice at Harvard or and uh, Johns Hopkins. Now I'm at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and uh, most of the growth in tuition in the U.S. has gone not to hire more professors, but it's to hire more and more uh, administrators. Yeah. Uh, in some degree, this drives wokeness. Every day I get an email about some new DEI initiative or something like that to justify the salaries of people making $800,000 a year as you know, vice this or that uh, for diversity. But there would be some other make work thing for these administrators uh, you know, to, to justify their, their incomes. Look, when I went to college as an undergrad in 1979, about uh, 11, 12% of Americans had BAs, forget PhDs and professional degrees. Today, it's, it's getting close to 40%, right? Uh, the vast majority, the jobs of 1979 and of 2022 are not that radically different. Uh, you do not have 40% of jobs now in the US require a BA. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, a government agency, uh, all but registered nurse and manager out of the top 10 jobs uh, require nothing more than uh, what we call high school and maybe a few weeks on the job training. They don't even require community college. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, so then the question is, uh, why uh, then are all of these uh, students going to college? Well, the answer is not that uh, their actual jobs require college education. It's that uh, uh, employers are allowed to use diplomas to ration access to the workforce. Yeah. Uh, and if you have a four-year diploma, particularly from a minor school, this shows that you show up to work, you have some discipline, right? You're not an addict. You're not going to vanish. Uh, so it's like it shows you some character traits. You know, what you learned, you're not going to use. I mean, you know, a barista at Starbucks, but, but Starbucks will prefer a barista with a BA to one without for that reason alone. Uh, my own uh, a theory is if you could graduate from high school or the equivalent in, in Britain, get a good paying job, buy a home or a house or a condo and start a family, then I think the demand for college diplomas would collapse yeah. and, and the supply would shrink. I wouldn't know why it wouldn't shrink because uh, in the U.S. and I think it's true in the U.K. too, there's a big foreign market for diplomas, so, so foreign students would make up the slack. Uh, uh, the other thing that, that really uh, frightens and annoys my academic friends is, uh, I, see, I'm kind of in the position where I argue that of the three factions in the uh, overclass, the managerial elite proper in the big firms, the small, biz the small producers and the professionals, we actually want to have more managers and fewer professionals and small business owners uh, because uh, the professionals, including the academics in the US and a lot of the small businesses depend on protectionist regulations. Yeah. You know, if, if you, you broke these down, then you could supply, and here I sound like a libertarian maybe, but this was actually yes. 
But this was the argument of uh, Eugene of, of Eugene Debs, yeah, and a hundred years ago. They they said we want the small producers to go bankrupt. Let them join the proletariat. Let them join our union. Uh, and if professors were were not a huge group at that point, they they grown now nonprofit people. But but I think these old trade union and socialists. Instead of saying like the Democrats do, we need to add two years of preschool and then two years of postgraduate education for everybody. They would say, no, 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 just join the union or join the the working class. What's wrong with being working class? And so in that sense, since 90% of students, including most of my own students, they do not go to get a BA to study the great books and to become conversant with the great works of art and literature as taught by self-governing faculty. Uh, It is a trade school. They go to get a job. And if they could get a well-paid job without spending four years on campus, they would do so. So, so it's in that sense, it's not an, I'm not a libertarian. If anything, I'm, I'm public enemy number one for libertarians. They really dislike me in the U S uh, but, but let's face it, uh, the, the, the small business bourgeoisie and the professional gentry, the ministers are kind of dropping out because people are getting less religious on both sides of the Atlantic. But you have the professors, the independent doctors. I, I think these are kind of relics of the earlier bourgeois phase of capitalism. Yeah. And, and there's been no managerial revolution in the provision I'll give you an example. In the United States, opticians have used their political power to prevent you from buying eyeglasses or contact lenses directly from the manufacturer. Uh, you have to go through them and pay their fees and all of that. It's just this naked small producer protectionism. Uh, the, uh, uh, in terms of the proletarianization of the academy, this is nearly complete in the United States. I don't know about elsewhere, but 70% of undergrads are taught by very poorly paid adjuncts. Yeah. Not have tenure in the United States. And many of them are, are paid very low amounts. They can hardly live on. Uh, I'm fortunate as a professor of practice, I'm paid moderate academic salary. Uh, but some of them live in, in near poverty yeah. and have to commute between different schools and teach six classes a week. So uh, it would be better if that kind of undergraduate instruction were just carried out by the equivalent of high school teachers, uh, rather than pretending that these instructors are primarily scholars and intellectuals yeah. who, who just happen to kind of teach in their spare time. Why not say, let's have instructors who do not do research and do not claim to be intellectuals. They're teachers, paid well, and they have benefits and good jobs. And then for the actual intellectuals, you know, the the research physicists and the social thinkers and so on, we will have academic institutes. Yeah, I take take that point, particularly about the... um, you know, the fact that the de facto trade schools now, and not to mention the proletarianization of the academy, that's familiar, certainly in the UK as well. 
Um, would you mind just telling? Uh, I don't know if I don't know if we'll keep it in, but would you? I'd be very curious to hear. Would you mind just telling us what you're working on at the moment? And I'm sure our listeners will be interested too. Uh, yes, my next book, uh, which is almost complete in draft, is an expansion of an article I did after the January 6th riot at the Capitol, uh, uh, January 6, 2020, for Tablet Magazine called Five Crises. And I go over a, a lot of these themes about, I focus on wages uh, and how wages have been driven down in the U.S. My main focus is on the U.S., but it's relevant to other countries. Uh, and and I argue that a great number of social pathologies that are happening simultaneously from uh, falling rates of family of, of formation, lower uh, uh, child births than most uh, parents want, uh, you know, social anomian alienization, identity politics, political polarization, that a lot of these are indirectly, if not directly linked. To, uh, to this underlying uh, spread of bad jobs with bad wages, which uh, that's, that's the ultimate cause, the proximate cause is credentialism. So I, so I build on the theme from the new class war. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, there were multiple routes to what in America we call the middle class. It's not what you would call the middle class in Britain, you call it the prosperous working class. Uh, but we called it the middle class, uh, home ownership and having a car and a, a dishwasher and so on. Yeah. Uh, you, you could be a well-paid union member. Uh, you could be, own a small business. You could, uh, uh, but you could also go to college and become a professional. Uh, with, with unionization being destroyed in the United States, in the private sector, uh, in small business, being put for the most part, I think, on the path to extinction by technology rather than any particular big business conspiracy. Uh, that, that means that really there's now this narrow bottleneck of university credentials through which you squeeze into the middle class defined as a standard of living and a wage, not defined as what you know about, you know, uh, the Greeks and the Romans and algebra. Uh, and again, so I, I, my thesis is if you, you could join, have achieved that standard of living without getting the credentials, which include occupational licenses in some cases, as well as university credentials, then I think th th there would be less ruthless competition for university places. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So the Supreme Court is going to hear about affirmative action, uh, racial preferences in university admissions at Harvard and Yale, other, other schools. Uh, I went to Yale and taught at Harvard. Uh, this is a really important thing now because uh, increasingly you cannot have a, a, a career as a member of the American elite unless you go to one of a dozen top universities. The US is becoming more like Europe in that sense. Yep. Uh, that was not the case 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, there were regional elites, you know, there were powerful trade unions. There were all kinds of different journalists. They didn't have degrees. Hollywood, forget it. Uh, so, so this bottleneck of credentialism, that's the theme of my, my next book. Uh, 
and, and we don't want to replace it with a new kind of credentialism. Here I depart with a lot of otherwise well-meaning people. But they say, well, not everybody should go to college. Uh, they should go to community colleges and have apprenticeships. No, they actually need bargaining power with the boss, right? And uh, if you just shunt them off for four years into a training program or community college, is that going to raise their wages? Not necessarily. Uh, So at the end of the day, uh, you have to increase the bargaining power of working class people uh, through organization uh, and and also through tight labor markets, which will include some kind of limits on, on unskilled immigration. Uh, that's inevitable. Uh, you cannot have a tight labor market uh, if employers can, uh, you know, have a buyer's market in labor. What you want is, and that, that's the fundamental class conflict, I think, in modern societies where most people are wage earners. The employer wants too many people competing for too few jobs. It's in the interest of the working class to have employers competing for too few workers. Yeah. We're seeing now, thanks to the COVID-related pandemic disruptions, uh, workers have some bargaining power for the first time in decades. Yeah. Well, that is um, really like very much. Look forward to reading to reading that book as well. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Mary, very much for joining us. That's been fantastic. Thank you. I was glad to take part. All right, so the three of us are back, Alex, Phil, and George, uh, to discuss what we've learned uh, and what we've thought of Michael Lind's take. Uh, Phil. So I, well, I mean, I, you know, I found it tremendously um, stimulating and informative. Um, and Michael, you, I thought he was a tremendous guest. And I, I learned, you know, I learned about American politics listening to him. So what did you guys think? I learned about American politics, too. I'm always looking to be learning. So, um, you know, long may it continue. That's why we've got a podcast on this. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, I thought the whole thing was, was pretty compelling. There's loads of parts where I was like, mm, I'm not sure about that. Or mm, I'm not, that's maybe a bit of a contradiction, but I, you know, would want to tease that out. So maybe let's tease that out now. Um, I think one of the things I guess I wanted to highlight, which actually I said in the introduction about this new class of bureaucrats, right? Or maybe not new class, but expanding class of, of bureaucrats, because that's what uh, is at stake here. Um, and I th- it's undoubted, you know, kind of monopoly capitalism, large corporations, et cetera. Um, there's an incredible amount of bureaucratization, something that um, Mark Fisher talks about as, uh, as kind of, what does he call it? Cat, not cat, market Stalinism, right? Um, which is something that, runs counter to kind of right-wing libertarian accounts, which is like, oh, the state is all bureaucratic and slow and whatever, but corporations are nimble and fast and not bureaucratic. Well, no, very much uh, to the contrary. And all the kind of woke HR stuff, just to take one example, one small piece of the of the whole story, is as present in the private sector as, as it is in the public sector. And that's something that needs to be kind of unpicked. And I think any kind of left-wing project would have to be anti-bureaucratic at some level, but also without necessarily falling into some sort of completely disaggregated or libertarian vision where 
um, you know, effectively you need large entities to ma manage the modern world, to do all the big things that humanity wants and needs to do. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a contradictory and, you know, difficult question. So I think that was, I mean, that seems to be, I didn't, I mean, if this didn't come across in the, in the talk itself, I mean, it's certainly um, what Michael has written about elsewhere is that there is from his point of view, that this group of people is inevitable in a, you know, advanced, complex industrial society, um, that you require people doing all these kinds of technical specialized roles in large, complex organizations. But what's missing is that um, being counterbalanced by the working class. And that's where his model of corporatism, democratic pluralism, as he calls it in the book, um, state corporatism, or sorry, social corporatism, as he calls it, um, that he sees that their power is kind of unchecked. And if it's more counterbalanced by um, an organized working class with their Jimmy Hoffa tribunes, um, that, you know, then that it's a more kind of, um, it's a less unwieldy structure. And the, ins the work with insanity presumably is held back. So that's his take on it. And um, I mean, no. There are other yeah. points as well, and I suppose that that I think are worth drawing out. But one thing that's, I suppose, so he made a great deal of the the principal agent problem. But we'll come back to that because um, uh, George wanted to come in. Yeah, no, I think this one of the sort of best bits of um, of the interview was the observation that he makes that to the extent that the working class is weak, it's these intra elite factional disputes that go a long way to defining and determining the, mm. the character of politics. And I thought the this idea that he had of um, factions of the ruling class rather than distinct classes, I think this was, this was um, yeah, I think one of my favourite bits of the interview, those, the idea that you have those three factions, the first, the kind of managerial capitalist elites, so the CEOs of big businesses, the small business elite, less likely to be college educated, and then third, the professionals proper, the self-employed, kind of high prestige hangover from the 19th century um so and i think you know seeing these these groups um or these factions with their kind of different threats to their um to their material and, and social interests particularly that third group um who are increasingly absorbed either into that first group i.e the professionals proper absorbed into the managerialist capitalist elites or proletarianized i think that's that kind of dynamic certainly goes a long way to explaining um a lot of american and, and british politics and a lot further further afield i mean it was interesting as well right because he was like we want more of, of that first group and less of the second and third more managerialist capitalist elites right less less small business elite less professionals proper and and this was one of the contradictory things that i identified i mean maybe i missed what was you know coherent about it but for me it was like okay so on the one hand he says and i totally agree with him here there's no going back you know, and this is why he's so resistant to populism, which has always been based first in agrarian populism of smallholders, then in the sort of, you know, in France, bourgeoisism of like small, um, small business owners, and today also in forms of small business owners, and maybe independent contractors and whatever, and that their kind of antitrust approach to politics of breaking up big corporations and whatever um, is something is just a hangover from the past. It's reactionary in that sense. Uh, and there's no going back. So he's resistant to that. But at the same time, he's so critical of the managerial overclass of this swelling of a bureaucracy, which has its own interests, um, that it leaves me a bit unsure where exactly he stands. So he's anti-bureaucracy, but he also thinks we need more managers and fewer independent professionals, right? Um, that it's good that people are integrated into large organizations, according to his. But I was, I was so, sympathetic. 
I was sympathetic to that. I mean, you know, he's, it is, it's one of his books, not that I've read it, but one of his books is about why bigger is better. So against the petty, you know, the, essentially the petty bourgeois model for the economy, that sure. large, you know, large organizations for organizing the economy is better for everybody. Um, and I think, you know, broadly speaking, I think that's right. So, but I don't, so I don't see why but, that's a contradiction. Well, no, but I, that, that, that bit's fine. But the other side of it is to be, then be effectively anti-bureaucratic, to be so opposed to the managerial overclass and, but, but he wants but it to persist. Got out, in his view, they've gotten so out just, of, well, but it's not that it's, but his point is it, you it can't eradicate to, them and nor would you want to, if you have large, right. so the, so the idea large is just to counterbalance to, it. Yeah, you need to politically contain them by counterbalancing them. So my, I mean, my take is any time that you're talking about balancing, you're in trouble, right? Because inevitably it means that there's, you know, kind of it's, you get the image of a, well, it's not just, well, I mean, that presupposes you're a Marxist. And um, whereas I'm, my view, you know, even short of Marxism, the idea of balancing suggests a delicate operation which is always going to be difficult to pull off, right? Because you've got to have a precise set of weights and counterweights. And so it never seems to me to be a, you know, a viable model in the long run where you have this idea that it needs to be this very kind of intricately, delicately poised system where mm. things are posed against each other because, you know, a balance can always be thrown off kilter. So if our future is more balanced, it always seems to me a difficult future to reach for, even well, you know, separately from questions of Marxism or not. The problem, I guess, about balance is that <clears throat> if anybody starts to get or any group starts to get a relatively stronger position, they don't want that balance anymore. Like, why Why would they? Why would they want to maintain those structures which will constrain their their power? I mean, I think this did, you know, it comes through more strongly in, in the book, I think, some of the solutions that he that he proposes um but I, I mean i do think it was a, again a really interesting part of the the interview when it was you know what do we actually do from his point of view the point of view of democratic pluralism you know what, what is the actual um shape of this political project is it a kind of uh rebirth of associational life um you know that kind of partnerite or or uh Tocquevillian solution and then you know i think to be fair he was he was that's the easy like option that's the easy way out and he was <clears throat> you know he wasn't prepared to to say that instead he said that the the state will need to kind of assume some of the costs of rebooting that kind of associational life which will be needed for this balance and essentially you need a reformist faction of, of the overclass to be able to to do this and i think that's you know that that seems a lot more compelling than a sort of like easy way to say like yeah let's just reboot kind of you know trade unions churches clubs and so on because mm. that's a massive sociological undertaking i agree so i mean i um well i'm not you know i'm not um it's not a project that I find appealing or would support the idea of a state-led corporatism or a state attempt to reboot um, these kind of um, associational life. I think at least it's more honest than the hand-waving about, um, you know, it's more kind of politically honest and it's willing to see a political project through with state power than the kind of hand-waving about empty, the bowling alone claims about the empty clubs and the absent trade unions, because those aren't, you know, those organizations are not going to be, they're not going to be put back together by the DSA, you know, and they're not going to be put back together by podcasters. They're not going to be put back together by academics talking about it. Yeah, no, indeed. Um, I, I, it might be worth a bit of a thought experiment in according to which 
you know, there have been no, periods. Okay. This in isn't, which... There isn't. There isn't going to be some some trolleys here. No, there's people. no, no, no. It's not one of these. Uh, uh, okay. it's, it's actually quite historically grounded. Um, okay. Marxists in posi- in situations, um, say in the early 20th century, in largely agrarian societies, often supported modernizing elites and often quite authoritarian ones because there wasn't a developed proletariat. And so that modernizing elite would industrialize the country, create unions, or even if those were um, unions which were, you know, kind of managed top down, like in Brazil, it's called like, it was referred to as tutelados, you know, under like Vargas's Brazil, um, so tutored effectively unions. Um, and it's in, I, I say that just because Michael Lind reminded me of it because he made reference to Vargas's Brazil or for, for that matter, Peron's Argentina. Um, and what if we're in a similar situation today? Of course, there is a, a hugely developed proletariat. The pro- global proletariat is larger than it has, has ever been, but it's so, of course, disaggregated that maybe you strategically support such a project, a top-down authoritarian one, one that you would otherwise be totally opposed to, kind of um, tactically as a means of returning to a more public capitalism, regrouping people into organizations, perhaps by force, um, so that then you might be able to, to fight better from that platform in the future. Just a thought I'm sure experiment. It's, plenty, it's but I'm sure there's plenty of PMC who will buy that project. They'll yeah. happily want to have state guaranteed jobs. Their authoritarian instincts will find, you know, in that kind of, um, in that state, top-down state-led vision, they will find um, plenty plenty of scope for their authoritarian instincts and their desire to, to police and corral um, working sure. class members. But, but, so, who, but, but the point would be who cares about that their interest being satisfied or not. The point is that it would it would create a, a new context, an entirely new context in which the working class would be better able to fight than it is now. You know, that well, would be the, the idea. I don't, I mean, I don't buy it, um, but I also, I mean, I suppose it's a separate question from whether or not it's going to happen. And I don't really see that there is the the political will or the coalition for it. Right, there and that would be elements. and that would be a, and that would be a pointed uh, criticism to make to Michael Lind, which I thought also listening to it. It's like, okay, but sure, what but is he, this reformist elite? He's saying this do is what this? we need. He's saying this is what we need, but I'm not. I don't think he identified that there is actually a political kind of agency for it. Um, there are. No, and I think that's to, kind of to his to his credit because the um, you know the idea that working class power could. Um, I guess, like <clears throat> get these concessions or obtain these structures from the from the ruling class or the managerial labor class. I think that wouldn't be a very compelling line because essentially for working class power to be at a level that you can get these um, concessions, you know, you could get considerably more. Um, and that's, you know, that's a bit of a different, a different project. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is that the, the sort of, I think one of the problems with this sort of balancing or, or the, the, the logic of his argument, I made this point on, in the reading club, I think, um, the logic of his position that this idea that kind of populism is is a symptom <clears throat> of a technocratic neoliberalism, that's, that's the disease. And then this idea of democratic pluralism is the cure. The problem with that is that the, I think the structures of democratic pluralism that he sort of puts forward, they're too, they don't give the power that, that they don't respond to that loss of sovereignty, which is the whole kind of, starting point of, of populism so it's the, i think there's a there's a sort of challenge there to his position on its own terms in terms of you know will <clears throat> would this even be sufficient like if because he is quite anti-populism would the sorts of structures that he says you should put into place would those be sufficient to stop um 
the populist um, kind of symptoms of of loss of sovereignty. I would say. I'm not. Maybe, but how? It, not. But, but but presumably his nat, you know, kind of national corporatism would be like deliberate. Would be clearly sovereigntist. I mean, there's no question about that. So presumably it would well, resolve that problem. It, well, no, not necessarily, because the whole point would be: do these structures give um, give decision making power to to the people, to the working class, whatever? No, it's constrained, it's balanced. So, is that there's always a possibility of kind of uh, an appeal outside of that system to pe- to saying, you know, really take take control, take back control, because these these structures are not going to be you don't you know you're always going to have to compromise you're always going to have but, to but but it, um, but but you're saying is that it, it, it's you're saying well his isn't a, a radical democratic approach and i'm sure he would answer no indeed it isn't i'm not interested in radical democracy um you know i'm interested in in corporatism I, i'm interested in in a rebalancing um and a tripartite structure between business the state and and labor so you know, I think I think you're pretty. I would I agree with like your position, George. I just, I just think I'm not sure that lands a blow against Lind because that, that's not something that he's interested in the first place. Um, so yeah, may, 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 so you're saying that my my objection boils down to he doesn't have my <laughs> my position, um, and so therefore I don't <laughs> like what he's saying. Maybe, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, to, right. to, I guess to an extent. Um, the there was a, there was another thing which is that which Phil alluded to before about the principal agent problem, um, namely that, you know, you do, the separation between owners of capital and then the people who implement those decisions at a kind of bureaucratic level um, is um, a relic of the 19th and early 20th century. Phil, well, it was inter- me on that? Yeah, well, it was interesting to me because he weighed, you know, I mean, it seems to be the, the, um, his strong kind of claim against Marxism. So obviously, given the fact that he's um, so much of his case rests on arguments about class, he has to differentiate himself from, um, you know, the most kind of uh, notorious class-based politics. And he does that by resting a lot of the weight of or the burden of his argument on the idea of this, um, the principal agent problem and the separation of ownership and control. And so he says, you know, that essentially these um, agents in this case, what we call the PMC, what he calls the managerial overclass have kind of run amok um, because they're not controlled by anybody. And this is an outgrowth of the particular structure of capitalism, which has gone far beyond the 19th century model of um, as outlined by Marx and Engels. And I suppose the um, what struck me about it was that, you know, I mean, it's obviously an important point. Um, it is something, you know, I'm not wishing simply to um, uh, to kind of Marx explain, as the kids say. Um, but it is something, it's something, I mean, it is a point that's anticipated um, in the kind of the classical Marxist canon and already visible in the late 19th century. But in, I mean, interestingly, so it was taken as vindication for Marx and Engels. Obviously, it was vindication of Marxist theory rather than a... Um, a blow against it. But more, I suppose, more to the point is what it, I think what he underestimates, you know, because it's not to say that there isn't a principal agent problem with the PMC. Um, what I think he underestimates is the idea of capital as an independent social power of its own. And that a society that is organized around, you know, capitalism is a society organized around capital itself, 
um, that it is the whole point of the Marxist critique is that it is a power that is independent of human will. Um, mm-hmm. So it goes beyond simple kind of, you know, principal agent problems and how you might rectify principal agent problems. It's the core of the critique is the fact that society is beyond any conscious human control. And that's not something that's simply resolved by rectifying a principal agent problem. So I think that would be, it's, you know, yeah. that would be the, the hard argument, I think. Um, yeah, for, no, I against that. He, he does. He does talk about I mean, he did mention in the um, in the interview, the uh, Bruno Rizzi bureaucratization of the world. So he, he does like he that he clearly has an awareness of some of them. He's very you know, familiar with it. And he, he's willing. I mean, he, yeah. Yeah. He said, I mean, he, you know, a lot. He was willing to uh, acknowledge his debt to James Burnham, who's obviously a very important um, figure in 20th century U.S. Um, political theory and was, as he said, you know, a very important former Trotskyist. And so a lot of these debates about whether or not bureaucracy was replacing capitalism, they grow out of the Second World War. And the, um, I mean, the arguments the Trotskyists were having themselves about what Stalinism represented and what it heralded for the future of world politics. Yeah, and I, I mean, I mean it, yeah. it, it comes... I mean, where, where I would, I guess, most dissent from what Michael Lynn says, I find him overly sociological, you know, that it's about the sort of empirical people, the you know, in the in this case, in the specific discussion of the capitalists, but also about their habitus, you know, about where they're where they're from and all that, which is not unimportant kind of raw material. But again, it ignores the question, which Phil, I think, rightly raised is, you know, capital as a sort of independent force. And maybe, you know, he, I'm sure, I guess you say, I'm sure he's very aware of it, but maybe even kind of methodologically or whatever, philosophically, he doesn't recognize that as a, you know, maybe he's just more uh, empiricist and therefore he wouldn't recognize something like capital acting kind of behind people's backs and so on. Yeah, quite so. Though, and, I mean, um, I should and, say though, and it's, yeah. sorry, just to finish off that thought, there's a direct political consequence to that. I'm not just like talking about like methodology or whatever as an academic concern or whatever, um, but because it, it actually plays out in how you interpret the role of the bureaucracy and why it might act the way it does, not just by looking at kind of what their interests are in a narrow sense or what their habitus is or, you know, how they um, are formed or um, socialized through, ed- through education or through their bureaucracies or whatever, but also, but because in some ways they are there to implement capitalism, or to, to put it kind of in, a, in crude terms, right? Um, and and that this is a, the form of capitalism. Maybe capital needs these bureaucracies to continue functioning, and I think it, indeed it does. Um, so, which, which then kind of changes your maybe changes your your political answer to, to what to do about them, what to do about the bureaucracy, you know, um, and whether you ah. see it as and whether you see it. Sorry, final point whether you see that bureaucracy as distinct from the capitalists, you know, as a kind of independent force, which I think he does, or whether you see them as part as part and parcel of the same package. Yeah, I was only going to say, I mean, I found the empirical observations really useful and insightful, actually. And so the fact, you know, that at least according to him, that the, um, you know, the oligarchs, culturally, they don't feel themselves distinct from those he calls the overclass. Um, you know, he says they dress the same, they go to the same schools, they think the same way. And I think that is probably very, notwithstanding separate economic interests, you know, I think it probably is still important in terms of um, accounting for certain political dynamics is that congruence in terms of cultural outlook between those two groups. But anyway, I'll, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think just, just one sort of final thing to add that there was 
also he had a couple of like really nice lines or good like insights on American political history, this idea that Republicans until recently rejected the state and embraced the nation and the Democrats, the, the reverse. I thought that was a nice um, encapsulation, <clears throat> talking about nanny paying professional elites. Um, and this is why they're pro-immigration. You know, it doesn't 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 pull his punches, I don't think. Um, but I guess I just wanted to throw it back to you, Phil, when he talked about uh, destroying the, the academy, ending tenure, getting rid of the older view of the um the academy i thought that was a good you know it was a good discussion because i think i you know would would uh, perhaps naturally be on the sort of side of defending the ideas of academic freedom and there's there's still something to be salvaged uh, in the academy or maybe i was like that in when i was young and naive and now you know <laughs> put them all in the fields no offense to any um any of our academic or 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 other listeners who who work in fields or whatever but just get get rid of the academy yeah well i mean it it does it does have serious implications right because it would separate the unity of teaching and research entirely you know it would make a class of professional instructors you know and he uses the term deliberately um who aren't intellectuals who aren't researchers and then you'd have separate researchers and that you know, is a fundamental change to the university that's existed for over 200 years. So I don't, I don't agree with him. I'm more, far more sympathetic to your, to your uh, position, Phil, though it feels in some ways like the latter, his version is more realistic. You can see the sort of imminent tendencies pushing towards that sort of solution. So that towards that situation of like professional research institutes and just training separate from that, um, then the return to a, a, a you know community of scholars that Phil advocates, which I agree with. It's I mean I think there's some tendencies pushing towards that. There are the ed tech entrepreneurs, but as I tried to you know put a push on him that it's kind of sleazy neoliberalism that I think would, and also just very under underpowered, you know, it's a world of endless kind of Zoom lectures and seminars. And it seems to me already, you know, there is a space for that. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to discredit it because it does offer certain kind of access advantages and um, organizational and logistical advantages in certain contexts. But generally, you know, there's much to be said for face-to-face education. So, I think, you know, some of the some of the kind that kind of stuff, I think, sits ill at ease. And I suggested this to him with other aspects of his political vision. But notwithstanding that, my yeah, I think it would be I think it would be probably a mistake to separate research and teaching as radically as he proposes. Um, But all of that said, there is no uh, getting around the there is no getting around the issue that, you know, big you. As part of the um, as part of the kind of outgrowth of the managerial overclass or PMC or whatever you want to call it, Big U as he calls it, is tremendously over you know tremendously powerful, and the campus culture was the that power is evident in the way in which campus culture is spilled over into professional institutions such mm-hmm. as newspapers, NGOs, um, the media more broadly, um, and all of these campus concerns about no platforming, deplatforming, silencing dissent, that it has become so dominant is testimony to the power of Big U, cultural and political. And so he's no doubt right that it needs constraining in some way. Yeah, uh, face-to-face teaching, not not ass-to-mouth teaching. You can't have an educational human centipede of just transmission, shoving it down your throat. But uh... no? I'm not sure... I'm not sure that's what anybody's advocating um, at this point. Um, <laughs> I 
Oh, yeah, on that scatological note, um, maybe we'll leave this here. Um, let us know what you thought of this. Uh, we're curious to know what you made of the interview, of our discussion about it. Uh, we are going to be doing an alpha bonus bonus. If you're new to our patron, welcome. We do these uh, more or less once every two months uh, where we take all your questions and criticisms and uh, discuss them. So I'm um, looking forward to doing that. Uh, lots of uh, commentary on recent episodes. So I'm um, very much looking forward to catching you next week when uh, that will be out. And But that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.